you. She's an evil person. She's an evil person. And whatever they need to do to keep her there, do it. After all these years, I still don't believe that anybody was murdered. I just don't. I think a lot of the problem that the town had with me was the fact that I was openly gay. She was mad at me because I left her. I cheated on her. I thought that Glenn was the first person to ever love me. I don't think she expected to at all. I think that she expected to get me locked up and that she was going to walk away and go home. I don't think she expected to do a day. I thought that when the first year she'd give it up, but she didn't. That's your sentence, is to die in prison. I mean, that's yes, what your is. sentence yes, is. Yes, it is. Do you think Kathy Wood should? I mean, if you are? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. If she's going to take my life, she took my whole life. Or something that never even happened. She thought it was a, a game, and she won, and in the end, she'll win. If I die in here, and she's walking around free, she'll win. Grand Rapids, Michigan. During the sensational legal proceedings that shocked the city in the waning months of 1989, the local and national press engaged in some questionable journalism, at least when it came to their editorial choices. It was bad enough that, when it came to the case, the press focused on how the accused had been in a lesbian BDSM relationship, the implication being that kinky dykes were more apt to murder people, as opposed to the women in question just being evil sociopaths, perhaps. What was worse, though, were the frequent insinuations in the press that the elderly victims were just some kind of ancient husk people in vegetative states, waiting and wanting to die, as if they had all welcomed being brutally murdered in their beds, as if life was without meaning or resonance in later years when its quality diminished, as if none of them had family or friends who treasured them and wanted the best for them even if it was their twilight time, so to speak. And the press was wrong. Many of the victims, even those suffering from conditions like dementia or Alzheimer's, were still very aware of their surroundings and what was going on around them. They were aware enough to show fear of certain staff members at Alpine Manor's nursing home, aware enough that some of them would resist any sort of procedure or care that brought anything near their mouths or jaws. Some were even aware enough to beg their families to transfer them from, to different facilities or to call the police for them. Some of Alpine Manor's aides, they claimed, were trying to kill them. To the eternal guilt of some of these family members, fears were assuaged through gentle words and soft denials. After all, delusional moments were to be expected given some of their conditions. Outrageous accusations such as theirs could easily be explained away or shrugged at. Undoubtedly, some of Alpine Manor's patients' fears had a very real basis. You see, at Alpine Manor, in those awful years, what had begun as silly games and pranks between the staff members had escalated into experiments in power and control. Most of the patients were as helpless as tiny children. Their well-being, sometimes their very lives, depended on the staff. And there were people on the staff, two in particular, who saw those patients as little more than ants in the sun to hold a magnifying glass to, in order to see what would happen. You're listening to Wicked Gay, a true crime podcast about gay people doing awful things.
welcome back to Wicked Gay. Again, yes. I'm your host, Jay Harvey, and yeah, I know it's been a while. And every single how to podcast your podcast, instructional video, site thingy, blog post, whatever, including my lovely host, Seb Buzzsprout, said, whatever you do, don't pod fade. And then I went and sort of pod faded. Truthfully, a lot of it had to do with all those people from that one case, that one episode getting in touch with me. I got a little nervous because this is a labor of like and just a hobby type thing. And I started worrying that someone would end up suing me. So honestly, they wouldn't really get much. They get maybe a couple of thou and some garnished wages and our pandemic saga Lego collection, because that's all we really have. And and I did not give myself carpal tunnel and trigger figure from Lego to have to surrender all those fucking Lego sets my husband and I built over the last year and something. It's true. I am. I, I think I might have given myself carpal tunnel and trigger finger from doing Lego. It was a long year, as we know, right? Um, and no one from that case even hinted at it. And the majority of them had actually had positive things to say about the episode, but it definitely shook me a little. So I took it down. I'm curious as to how other true crime podcasters deal with this phenomenon if someone from the case actually talks to you. I wanted to, like, find a closet and get inside of it under the shoes and just, you know, not talk to anybody. I mean, that's usually me anyways, but, like, on a different level. Anyway, um, and also, the, um, I podcast about some extremely shady, if not outright evil characters, some of them are still alive. Like, they're not all dead. Elizabeth Bathory, she's dead. But half the people are still kicking. And some of them are now out of prison. So the last thing I need is a loony on my doorstep with a negative opinion about how I betrayed their case on my stupid podcast, right? Although this episode's case is about two living murderesses. One of them who, yes, is out of prison. Because I never learn my lesson. It's just the case was so on brand for Wicked Gay, you know? I do intend to finish season three, aka Evil Dykes, but I'm not sure Wicked Gay is going to be back for fourth season. I was actually mulling over doing something a little different with a broader range of topics. I mean, it'll still be morbid and out there because, hi, I'm Jay Harvey, but it'll be a little less iffy on the LGBTQIA plus continuum, I think. I don't know. There are still a couple of two or three evildoers under that flag that I wanted to cover, so I guess we'll see. Oddly enough, though, during the long break, I still got downloads, so thank you ever so much. And, of course, before we begin, in reference to the previous episode from uh, 1630, um, Transylvania formed part of Hungary in the 11th to the 16th centuries. It became an autonomous principality of the Ottoman Empire in the 17th century, and then became a part of Hungary once again at the end of that century. It was incorporated into Rom- into Romania in the first half of the 20th century. So apologies for getting that wrong in relation to the blood counter story. I just had to clear that one up for one ornery, mouthy listener. So tonight, we're going to meet the two aforementioned women that are sort of an amalgamation of previous episodes of Wicked Gay in a way. They committed their crimes in a medical setting, hearkening back to Wicked Gay's first episode about Donald Harvey. And they also had a very strange relationship with each other, which calls to mind Tracy Wigginton from earlier this season and the unfortunate gals in her orbit. Their names were Catherine May Wood, Kathy for short, Kathy Wood, and Gwendolyn Gale Graham, Gwen for short. You heard Gwen talking in the opening to this episode. 
from a TV8 broadcast interview she did about the case and about her ex-lover, Kathy Wood. They were lovers who worked as aides at a now-closed nursing home called Alpine Manor in Walker, Michigan, which is a suburb of Grand Rapids. Point of interest, if you've ever watched the extremely uneven Roanoke reality show season of American Horror Story, Kathy and Gwen served as the basis for the two very minor villains, the two ghost nurses in that episode, in those episodes. And both of them are still with us to the present day. This episode is about their actions before, during, and after their crimes up until their imprisonment. Uh, There's a lot of documentation about their crimes and the before and after. And perhaps they've grown and changed since those terrible years and are seeking redemption for the terrible crimes. Who can say? That especially goes out to the one who's out of jail now, Kathy, honey. So just so you know, maybe you're a new person. Who knows? And the news coverage of the time referred to them as the Lethal Lovers, which is so cheesy, but we'll go with that for lack of something better. This is episode 26, Lethal Lovers, Kathy Wood and Gwen Graham. Gwen Graham originally hailed from Texas, from a very dark background of what she said was physical and sexual abuse. The people who knew her and law enforcement described her as having almost a split personality. She could reportedly be very loving, easygoing, almost childlike, very generous, and protective of both the women she dated and her patients. The other Gwen, however, was a hard-partying, substance-abusing, hyper-violent brawler, self-mutilating and prone to falling head over heels with the women she bedded. She was only 5'3", but despite being of slight build, she had no problem with getting into violent altercations with other women. And it turns out, she had no qualms about taking lives. Kathy Wood, by every account I have read, is a highly intelligent narcissist with psychopathic tendencies. According to all my sources... Wherever Kathy went, she played destructive mind games with the people in her orbit, just to ensure her power over them and to solidify her receiving the maximum amount of attention and validation. Unable to bear accountability for even the slightest wrong, she reportedly lived for finding out what made a person tick and then using it against them. She loved setting two people against each other by telling lies about one to the other and then watching things get ugly. She seemed to thrive on creating chaos. As of this recording, Gwen is still serving multiple life sentences in prison, and Kathy was paroled in January of last year. The story that the prosecutor fed to the jury was that diminutive, troubled Gwen was the mastermind behind the Alpine Manor murders, and that Kathy went along with it out of fear for her life. Now, like I said, Gwen was 5'3", and slightly built. Kathy at the time, well, I'm sure she still is, is 6 feet tall, and she weighed around 300 pounds at the time of the murders. So there's kind of a reality gap there that there was some physical intimidation. In fact, as I'll get into it, Kathy was known for um, beating Gwen uh, more than a few times in the presence of witnesses. Uh, um, And also, Kathy claimed that she committed her part of the crimes because she loved Gwen so fiercely. The truth would seem to be the other way around. Gwen might have indeed done most of the killing and deserves to be right where she is right now. But it would appear that Kathy manipulated her into doing it because she wanted to keep Gwen in her life by having something to hold over her. Another motive might have been revenge for Gwen falling in love with someone else. So yes, there are some that believe that she either willingly sacrificed 
30 years of her freedom just to get back at her ex-girlfriend and make sure that she spent the rest of her life in prison. She also might have miscalculated and, as Gwen said in the opening, thought that she could get away with her part in the murders and leave Gwen holding the rolled-up washcloth, as it were. That'll make sense later on when I explain how they killed the patients. And also, well, Kathy might have just done it for kicks. She loved games. She loved competition with others, as long as she was always the victor. In fact, there's evidence and testimony that Gwen and Kathy loved cutesy word games and codes and acronyms so much that they might have treated the murders as a game, trying to one-up the other and be the first to spell murder, the word murder, using their chosen victim's names. And that is the corniest fucking thing I've heard in a murder case, isn't it? Like, can you get a better motive, this cheesy-ass motive, and everybody's dying and you're just trying to do acronyms and password? Ugh, lame. So yes, Kathy might have been just a lookout as Gwen was suffocating patients in their beds, but it reads like she was the one running the show and probably should still be in prison serving the same sentence as her ex. Let's get into their backgrounds and the time leading up to the murders. The majority of the material for this episode came from a book about the case by one Lowell Caulfield called Forever in Five Days, and additional material came from Wikipedia, Murderpedia, and TV8. Now, Caulfield's book is definitely of the opinion that Kathy Wood was the more inherently evil of the two women, and that she tricked the cops and prosecutors into thinking that she was almost held hostage by Gwen and forced it to participate in the crimes. This was despite several of the women's mutual acquaintances and friends trying to set the record straight with the cops on what master manipulator Kathy was really like once you got past her cheery ways and teary confessions. And in the book, and this should not have made me laugh, but it did. Okay, well, the kid wasn't hurt, so I did laugh. In the book, you can tell that right off the bat, so to speak, that the author, uh, who looks like he did extensive research on this case, as well as interviewing both Kathy and Gwen, obviously didn't buy her act either. He he noted that she was a problematic personality type almost from the get-go, before she began murdering the elderly in their beds. Because, in fact, chapter two opens up with Kathy and her then-husband Ken at a baseball game, and Kathy <laughs> holding up her thirteenth, her thirteen-month-old infant to deflect a foul ball from hitting her. <laughs> Mother of the fucking year. And you get the impression that her ex-husband Ken wasn't or isn't too quick on the uptake, or, or love made him blind at the time because he doesn't immediately look for any banner advertising around the baseball park touting quickie divorce attorneys, right? Look, Ken, if the lady is going to use your baby as a catcher's mitt, she's probably going to fuck up your life and other people's, right? So Kathy was born in 1962, and she claimed her own parents were abusive, her father physically. Let's hear from Kathy. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? What kind of a child were you? Um, I spent a lot of time by myself. I read a lot. My dad, my dad was, he, he drank a lot, he was an alcoholic, and he was abusive. So um, I stayed by myself most of the time. You say abusive, physically abusive? Yes, physically, mentally. 
Kathy reportedly had a very strong fixation on her mom, too, claiming her mom never loved her or showed her any love, but she still clung to her in hopes of being shown it eventually. She was very dependent on her. She would go on to partially blame this upbringing of hers for the reasons for her crimes. She was no stranger to trauma. Uh, At age 14, she had dated an older teenager who lived in the next town named Dave. According to legend, he didn't tell her he was actually gender non-conforming and had been born a female named Debbie. Kathy claimed that she hadn't believed Dave's mother telling her at first that Dave had been born a female, so she'd initiated sex with him in a darkened bedroom. He, or she, or whatever was going on, penetrated her with a dildo, which hurt her, and afterwards finally confessed that he had indeed been born Debbie. The incident, she said, scarred her, and she would always equate sex with pain after that, according to her future ex-husband. In the book I read, he relates a story near the end of the trial that Dave, the Dave in question, got in touch with a member of the press to dispute Kathy's version of the story and say that she knew his non-binary status all along. And Kathy made this story a major event in her life and explained away a lot of her personality and actions from the trauma she said she'd received because of Dave slash Debbie. Trauma that might not have actually happened the way she said it did. Ken and Kathy met in 79 when Ken was 20 and she was 17. She was a junior in high school, and they eventually dated and married and had one daughter. Kathy's dealings with her only child wouldn't improve after the foul ball child deflection incident. Much later, she would admit to police detectives to physically abusing her daughter. She also psychologically abused her too, mocking and taunting her whenever she thought Ken wasn't aware, and she would run hot and cold on her daughter emotionally. When Kathy came out and made new friends in the queer community, the daughter would become an afterthought, unless Kathy wanted to use her as a weapon to torment her eventually ex-husband, Ken. Kathy's parents owned the home that her and Ken rented in Grand Rapids. She was a voracious reader, and their home was chock full of paperback books with stories about crime and lust. I think we had the same libraries. Their marriage was tumultuous, and they once found themselves separated for at least six months. Kathy delighted in mind games, and she lied about everything. She lied just to lie, it seems. She would have friends call Ken, pretending to be women he had met in the past, to ask him how he was and if he remembered them. Kathy furnished them with just enough details about Ken to seem convincing and make Ken doubt his reality. Later, Kathy told him it was to make sure he wasn't cheating on her. She'd been listening in on every single one of the calls. She was pregnant when they got married. Things went downhill from there. She preferred to read as opposed to caring for her daughter. Ken worked at General Motors, and Kathy took business classes for a degree path that she eventually abandoned in favor of a nursing degree, which she never got. She finally got a job for herself as a nurse's aide at Alpine Manor when their daughter was six. She joined Alpine Manor's softball team, and Ken, in an effort to be closer to her, volunteered as the coach. And things with Kathy were generally off. One night, she confessed to her husband that she wondered what it would be like to stab someone. Oh, well, who has it? Crickets. Never mind. She began to develop intense friendships with her co-workers at Alpine Manor. Have you ever had a job that became sort of your whole life, too? The kind of place you work at, but then you party together too with your coworkers. You become kind of intertwined in their lives. It's usually when you're in your twenties. The Alpine, the scene in Alpine Manor was like that. It was a lot. These nurses' aides, especially on the third shift during this time, all became fast friends. The majority of them of them were queer people, 
And the women especially, um, it got very intertwined and emotional and sexual, and you'll see as I go on. Kathy became very popular among the aides at Alpine Manor. In fact, you could probably say she was the queen bee. She eventually began cheating on Ken and dating a coworker named Dawn. Of Kathy, Dawn would later say that, quote, When you were around her, it was like she was the most popular kid in school, and you were the unpopular, maybe even deformed kid who didn't have friends. You wanted very much for her to like you. You wanted to be able to do things with her. You wanted very much to be her friend. And if you were, you were very much proud of that. And as we know from both real life and pop culture, if a queen bee doesn't wield her power in a benevolent manner, things can get super evil and super ugly. And guess what kind of queen bee power Kathy wielded? Yeah. Kathy would tell Dawn and her other co-workers that Ken was a tyrant and that her childhood was a horror show. Things at home started to become even weirder for Kathy and Ken. She began to tell him that she was evil and had dark secrets. She also said she heard voices telling her that there was neither a god nor a Satan, only the voice in her head was the actual deity overseeing reality. She asked Ken if he wanted to experiment with watching two women have sex or watching Kathy have sex with another woman. He declined, and he also declined when she expressed an interest in watching pornography at a local porn theater. Now, all this sex stuff, like, honestly, who cares? Explore your sexuality. No judgment there. But, you know, if you're acting super skeevy about it and eventually murdering elderly people, I mean, that's an issue, right? So no judging on the sex stuff. I mean, you're married, so I want to work that out first. Anyway... They began taking two cars to the softball games, leaving Ken and their daughter to go home without her. Kathy would zoom off with her coworkers to a local gay bar called The Carousel, where she held court almost every night with all the third shift workers from Alpine Manor. She was experiencing a total life change, new friends, new lifestyle, etc., the new girlfriend on the side. All this would have been fine if it didn't develop into something that was at first just toxic and messy, but then murderous. So it eventually became a pattern. Stay out all night, fight with Ken about not coming home in the morning, go back to work, repeat. Finally, she told Ken she wanted him to move out and that she wanted a divorce. He took their daughter with him. He felt that Kathy's lifestyle and aversion to mothering in general wasn't the place for a child. And then he found out that she was dating Dawn from Alpine Manor. Their seven-year marriage was over, but they would remain in each other's lives, mostly fighting, often physically. Ken would get into brawls with Kathy and whichever woman she was dating at the time. On the other hand, Ken also found himself repeatedly trying to rescue her from herself and still a victim to her mind games. They'd occasionally have sex still, and he would give her money when she needed it. She'd tell him that she wasn't sure she was actually gay now, and he'd believe her. He was convinced all she needed was psychiatric help. So the two of them were just kind of hopeless. A box of checks showed up for Ken at the house, and Kathy stole them and used them. Like most aspects of the story, it was just... The situation was just pretty messy. Kathy moved Dawn into the little house she used to share with Ken and their child. And she told Dawn that Ken, again, was a evil, you know, Cro-Magnon tyrant who often raped her. She also told Dawn that she felt bad that she didn't miss her daughter at all and that she didn't care about her. Well, yeah, you tried to use her to bunt, you evil witch. Kathy began throwing wild house parties post-visits to the Carousel Gay Bar and making everyone listen to her 45s of Donnie Osmond and the Partridge family. So, definitely an evil witch. 
She was known for getting everyone around her drunk, but drinking way less herself so she could stay in control of the proceedings. During sex play, she'd rake her nails down Dawn's back, leaving huge gashes, which is something she would eventually do to Gwen, the new aide at Alpine who was from Texas, and the woman who would change her life irrevocably. Gwen Graham was born in Santa Monica, California on August 6, 1963, and she moved between towns in California and Indiana as a child. Her family finally settled in Tyler, Texas, and her parents split when she was 17. That's when she moved back to Modesto, California to live with her dad, a long-haul trucker. She would later accuse her father of long-term sexual abuse when she was a teenager. Her childhood was really weird. Not only did she say that she was physically abused by her mother, but... Uh, her dad, in addition to sexually abusing her, was would also, in her in front of the other, her siblings, like slaughter animals because there was some farming involved, but he wanted to make sure that Gwen was toughened up to like being able to take care of the slaughter of the livestock or something. So she claimed she saw an assortment of animals being murdered in front of her as a kid, which really scarred her. So it sounds like she had a really, really gruesome, grotesque childhood. She herself was very into cars and motorcycles. Uh, Three months into her senior year of high school in Modesto, she dropped out and hitchhiked around the West Coast, working a variety of jobs from place to place, until settling back in Tyler at the age of 20. It was there that she began managing a convenience store, and she moved in with her first long-term female lover, a woman named Fran. Fran and Gwen had a tempestuous relationship that included physical violence, and eventually they broke up, but remained friends. Uh, Fran moved to Grand Rapids for work. When Gwen saw an ad for paramedic training in Grand Rapids, she moved there with enthusiasm, figuring Fran would welcome her. An interesting fact about Gwen is that she had a bunch of phobias. They included being terrified of large bodies of water, which she was convinced contained dead bodies floating in the middle of. And she also, most strikingly, had a fear of toilets and drains, where she was convinced she was going to be sucked down into them. Okay, so the book doesn't go into it, but after reading this, I was curious about the toilet fair, because how did she go to the bathroom? Like, seriously, the toilet fair is mentioned more than a few times in the book. Gwen even has, at one point, a breakdown in jail over the commode in her cell in one chapter. What did she do then? I Never mind. She was also known for having a series of very visible scars going up and down both of her arms. She would tell people that they were cigarette burns, that are, at first that her father administered as a sick form of discipline. Later, she would say that she burned herself as a response to his sexual abuse of her. She eventually got a job at Alpine Manor when she came to Grand Rapids, and she went through the training program to become a nurse's aide. It was there that she learned several tricks of the trade, including one in particular, uh, which was having patients who clenched their hands out of anxiety or fear during procedures like having vitals taken or being bathed. She would have them hold washcloths, rolled up washcloths in their hands, so they wouldn't receive lacerations from their fingernails during the procedures. So rolled up washcloths, and that would become important later. A little bit about Alpine Manor. It was privately owned, so allegedly not the sort of badly run torture tomb that your state-run nursing homes are like. It was a one-story flat-top building that had been called English Hills until the new owners renamed it Alpine Manor in 1984. No one bothered to change the nursing station designation names, however, so they still bore these UK-sounding names like Camelot, Dover, Buckingham, and Abbey Lane. 
they were all color coordinated. So for sight recognition for the patients who might not be able to remember the names of their sections, but they could recognize the colors. And Alpine Manor, like I said, was a nursing home. It wasn't a retirement community. It was 207 beds for patients, and they suffered from a variety of conditions that required them receiving what would begin as simple nursing care to eventually, depending on the staff, for everything to keep them alive. At the time of the murders, Alpine Manor reportedly also had a tendency to treat the patients like children. The interiors were cheerful, but decorated in a grade school classroom atmosphere that seemed to forget the ages of their patients who were anything but children. After the murders and complaints, it was said that Alpine Manor, which is called something different nowadays, that they kind of redid the entire interior and made it a little less, you know, cutesy first grader and more dignified and respectful, the fact that these patients were adults. And by the era of Kathy Wood and Gwen Graham, the women in the third shift, many of them began, they were by then sleeping with each other. It was messy on messy, and it all revolved around the whims of Kathy Wood. Kathy and Gwen met, and they hit it off right away. Kathy began complaining to Gwen about how much she didn't like Dawn, her girlfriend, and then Kathy eventually moved Gwen in with her, ostensibly as a roommate to help pay the bills, and Dawn eventually moved out. Kathy and Gwen got together romantically. Gwen called Kathy my woman and pretty girl, Kathy called Gwen Bunny Fufu, and I called Time Out to Vomit. Their relationship was very cutesy, but behind the scenes, they had gotten into some serious BDSM activity. Kathy loved inflicting pain on Gwen and vice versa. They would do poppers, and they would hit and bite each other. One would be tied up, and the other would try to suffocate her with socks over her hands. Kathy would scratch Gwen's back so badly that scabs would form, and Gwen would then be woken up by Kathy, but oh god, this is so... This is so extreme. You might want to hit the jump for this one. Kathy would wake Gwen up by pulling the scabs off her back slowly. Ah, no, Kathy. No, Gwen. It should be noted that Gwen also slept with most of the queer women on the staff at Alpine. Some she slept with while she was with Kathy. Kathy would then make the lives of these women a living hell until they quit Alpine Manor. Kathy even convinced Gwen to beat the shit out of one of them. So it was this sick game they would play, and they would involve their friends and others in it as well. Things at Kathy's house began to get really out of control. Everyone on the third shift at Alpine would would go to the carousel after work, and then Kathy and Gwen's. There would be nurses' aides making out on the street in front of the house on weeknights, and women fistfighting in the yard. It was basically like baby dyke week at p-town people would be running around naked and the cops were frequently called by horrified neighbors grand rapids did have gay bars yes but it was also fairly conservative so this sort of behavior was scandalous two women at alpine realized they were gay and left their husbands with others claiming it was at kathy's behest kathy and gwen would have these physical fights often over gwen sleeping with other women witnesses one night at kathy party saw her drag gwen by the hair into their now shared bedroom and beat her up Stories like that clash dramatically with Kathy's later tales about Gwen intimidating her physically into doing things. Kathy remained friends with Dawn and would often pit Dawn and Gwen against each other, and that would lead to violent brawls between the two women over Kathy. She kind of tried to form what sounds like like a 
fight club of middle-aged lesbian nurses aides fighting over her. One night, a woman named LaDonna broke up a bloody fist fight over Kathy between Don and Gwen. This was despite a laughing Kathy begging LaDonna not to break it up. LaDonna, who had an unrequited love for Kathy, drove Don home and went back to retrieve something from Kathy's. When she got there, a drunken, enraged Gwen told her that she was going to go, go out back with her and they were going to fist fight nude over Kathy. Kathy begged Gwen not to do this, but LaDonna had the distinct impression that Kathy was lying and it actually set the whole thing up. And this frightened her, and she quickly left. Despite being in love with Kathy, LaDonna was no dummy. And during this whole time, weird things began happening in Alpine Manor and with the patients. It started as pranks, and I'm using air quotes, engineered by Kathy and carried out by Gwen. Gwen would scare the new aides, though they would scare the new aides by... She would, Gwen would hide underneath the beds of sleeping patients in darkened rooms, and when the new employees would come in to help the patients, Gwen would grab their ankles from under the bed. They would do things like turn unresponsive patients so their feet were at the head of the bed, and vice versa to make themselves laugh. They would also switch patients from room to room to confuse the other aides. And I have to ask this, you know... Isn't sometimes you distribute medication by beds? Uh, okay, so they would make it. They made a patient with lisp with a lisp make a nonsense on the PA system. One time, they left a trail of candy throughout the nursing home for a confused patient who liked to put things in his mouth to follow. Everyone laughed. No one stopped this. They were treating human beings like playthings, which is a little sickening. Well, a lot sickening. By this time, Kathy had her run of the place, and Gwen was her minion. She delighted in getting other aides she didn't like fired. She would frame those aides for patient mistreatment, doing things like having Gwen pour water on the patients after a certain aide had already checked them, so it looks like she had not changed them after finding them incontinent. Kathy was known for her acting ability, particularly for being able to cry on command, something people saw her do to manipulate her ex-husband as well as her supervisors. As Gwen later said, people were terrified of Kathy, who by, that, who by that time had been promoted to a higher position than the aides at Alpine, something called Charge Tech. It was later said this was because she was they wanted to keep her away from the patients because she had developed a reputation for being verbally abusive towards them. First of all, verbally abusive to patients. Fire her, maybe? I don't know. Fire her? And then there began to be indications that these pranks that Gwen and Kathy were playing had become something more harmful and abusive. The family of a woman named Marguerite Chambers visited her for Christmas one year. She'd become non-communicative due to her various medical conditions, but she was still aware of her surroundings. When Marguerite's daughter noticed some remnants of her last meal on her mom's mouth, she found a washcloth to gently wipe her mother's face off. Her mother reacted in such terror at the sight and touch of the washcloth on her mouth, something she had never done before, that, that her reaction was so extreme that her daughter stopped and tried calming her down with soothing words and embraces. The woman's aides, most recently, had been Kathy Wood and Gwen Graham, and Marguerite would eventually turn out to be their first victim in Alpine Manor, a murder that was committed on January 18, 1987. That incident uh, with the washcloth convinced Marguerite's family that an attempt had been made on their mother's life before her actual murder. That, or Kathy and Gwen, were torturing the helpless woman until it eventually progressed to murder. Her family was confused after the young, unidentified woman from Alpine who called to report their mother's death 
told them that she had choked to death, but the doctor who signed the death certificate cited something cardiac as the result. Marguerite's daughter also noticed something else was odd when she arrived to claim her mother's belongings at Alpine Manor. A balloon they had gotten her to cheer her up that read mom on it was missing, read mother on it was missing. It would not be the last time that an item would go missing from a recently deceased patient's room at Alpine Manor. These missing items were never anything of value, but it was more like whomever took them was taking a souvenir. Now, you know how a grandparent will have like a knick-knack shelf with like in precious moments figurines or Hummel figurines or, you know, little frames with photos of the grandkids or what have you, or perhaps even a Beanie Baby. But uh, Kathy and Gwen had a knick-knack shelf with these seemingly unrelated items like little socks or like, I don't know, a medical bracelet or a big deflated balloon that said mother, even though Kathy would tell everyone how much she hated her mother. And Gwen would reveal that her mother beat the shit out of her. So why have a deflated mother balloon on a knick-knack shelf? Well, they said, as they told three other nurses' aides during a party, that knick-knack shelf holds the souvenirs from all the patients we've killed at Alpine Manor. Yes, Kathy and Gwen would laughingly show off their souvenirs from their serial killings. And the aides thought they were kidding. So, I mean, who wouldn't think they were kidding? That's a weird thing to do, even if you're as weird as Kathy and Gwen, but turns out that they weren't kidding. And here is the full victim list. 60-year-old Marguerite Chambers, 89-year-old Edith Cole, 95-year-old Myrtle Luce, 79-year-old May Mason, and 74-year-old Belle Burkard. And there were, the cops thought that there might be others, as well as plenty of other attempted murders, but they couldn't prove those. Kathy and Gwen had a post-murder tradition in which after they would asphyxiate someone in their bed, they would go home and recreate the crime using socks instead of washcloths. And that first uh, faux asphyxiation session after they murdered Marguerite Chambers was the night they claimed they told each other they would love each other forever. That's really sweet. Kathy would tell the cops after it was all over that Gwen found murdering Alpine Manor patients to be a way to relieve tension. Jesus, take up meditating or go to the gym, you mulleted asshole. Sorry, Gwen had a very substantial, substantial mullet. It was later noted that Gwen and Kathy would take at least two days off after every one of their patient murders, as if they were exhausted or maybe just to go home and have enough time to relive the experience over and over again. Kathy began reporting physical altercations with patients, sometimes receiving minor cuts and bruises. In hindsight, these were probably sustained during times when she was abusing patients or trying to kill them and they resisted her. So good on those patients. Later, Gwen would say that they would pair together on rounds, something that was against the rules at Alpine Manor, and they would test to see which patients would give too much resistance if they decided to kill them. They would clamp the noses of these patients shut to cold-bloodedly examine their reactions. The patient would be awoke, would wake up to hear someone saying, you're going to die tonight, to make it an even more terrifying experience. Jesus, these two are like demons. And, you know, it's like, F you, Gwen, because... After admitting some stuff, she finally, you know, settled on saying that nothing ever happened. No one was ever murdered. They never even did anything like this at all. So anyway, 
And in February of 87, there was a rash of injured patients at Alpine. Six patients suffered falls in a nine-day span, which is a high number and very unusual. One patient began attacking staffers out of nowhere, hitting and spitting at those who came close. An asthma patient refused their usual treatment, demanding to be taken to a hospital instead. One woman injured herself, throwing herself out of bed when staffers approached, scrambling away in terror. So it was obvious that Kathy and Gwen were tormenting these people in their beds who couldn't defend themselves. So, true evil. I'm so, I'm sorry. No matter how fucked up your background is, it's no excuse for doing this to people. It's as bad as having people in a camp. You know what I'm saying? And then it all began to fall apart because at some point, mid-murder spree, it seems, Gwen began secretly sleeping with a new aide at Alpine Manor named Robin. And Robin and Gwen's relationship set a whole lot of things in motion, and it climaxed with Kathy confessing the murders to her ex, Ken, and Ken going to the police. Gwen confessed the murders to Robin, who refused to believe her at first. In fact, Robin didn't believe her until after she moved back to Texas with Gwen. This was after Kathy threatened Robin's life and threatened to take Gwen away from her permanently. It wasn't until she had to testify against Gwen back in Grand Rapids that she finally believed that Gwen had done what she said. She also believed that she, Robin, had been on a hit list of Alpine Manor aides that Gwen and Kathy had debated murdering after offing helpless, infirm invalids had gotten boring. When Gwen finally left Kathy, she told Robin that on their last night together, Kathy had gotten so enraged that she had tied Gwen up and raped her with a pistol. Kathy would later tell the cops in the courtroom the same story only in reverse, that it was Gwen tying her up and raping her with a pistol. Gwen and Kathy moved to Texas. That's when Kathy finally confessed to Ken that she had murdered five patients at Alpine Manor with Gwen, or she had helped Gwen murder five patients at Alpine Manor. Ken didn't believe her at first. She was the mother of his child. He firmly believed that she needed psychiatric help but couldn't be a murderer. Kathy later said she told Ken because she knew he'd eventually go to the cops and she wanted to get out in front of murder charges. And because, this was her story, she was trying to prevent Gwen, whom she cast as the sole physical murderess in this case, from hurting anyone else. How noble of her. Gwen had reportedly been considered for a job working with children, and Kathy claimed Gwen had plans to begin murdering kids if she got the job. So, detectives for the Walker Police Department, they brought Kathy in for questioning, and there was a whole series of interviews. She kind of leaked out her version of the homicides, portraying Gwen as the mastermind and the hands-on killer. They eventually had to exhume two of the nursing home victims who had not been cremated. The physical examination failed to reveal any evidence of homicide, which is not unusual in a smothering by washcloth case. The county medical examiner nevertheless ruled the deaths a homicide based on the interviews that Kathy had given to the police. Does this seem legit to you? I don't know. Both women were arrested in December of 1988 and Kathy was held without bond in Grand Rapids on charges of killing two of the victims. In Texas, where rumors of the investigation had already gotten Gwen fired from her new job of hopefully hopefully not murdering children, luckily she hadn't murdered anybody yet, she was given a million-dollar bond, but and she briefly fought extradition, but returned to Michigan eventually. So the Alpine Manor staff and management and all their friends were appalled by the arrests, and Alpine Manor went into damage control mode, calling Kathy Wood a superlative employee. And this was despite several disciplinary reports against her, as well as many rumors of mistreating patients. They just wanted to put on this like front that the home had nothing going on. It was a beautiful place for old people to die peacefully. Former 
aides at Alpine began reevaluating all like the sick jokes and souvenirs they had been shown by Kathy and Gwen and had, you know, were ignored or laughed off or were like rolling their eyes at. Kathy became the star witness against Gwen. She pled guilty to second degree murder in September of 1989, a plea deal that kept her from life in prison. Uh, it gave her a sentence of 20 to 40 years. She claimed, and she still does claim, that she herself didn't murder anyone, only acting as a lookout for Gwen, and that the murders were all Gwen's idea, and that she'd only gone along with her to keep their love alive, so to speak. She took the stand against Gwen, and she it was basically her that assured that Gwen got life in prison. She testified that the couple turned the selection of victims into their murder game, trying to choose victims with the initials that would spell out murder. Um, I'm rolling my eyes so hard that my desk is now tilted. When that became difficult for them, they began counting each murder as a day, as in the phrase, I will love you forever and a day, which they would write in their letters to each other. They would leave each other cards and letters at the nurse's station at Alpine. They make you want to like put a finger down my throat. A, a poem by Kathy to Gwen, that, which was introduced in the trial, said at the end, you'll be mine forever and five days, meaning there were, there were five murders. Kathy also claimed that it was Gwen who took home souvenirs from their victims to relive their deaths. And like I said, there were never any souvenirs found. And here's a quote from Kathy about Gwen from her testimony. When she was killing people at Alpine and I didn't do anything, that was bad enough. But when she would call me and say how she wanted to smash a baby, I had to stop her somehow. I knew she was working in a hospital there, meaning Tyler, Texas, where she had moved back to with Don. Uh, sorry, with Robin. She said she wanted to take one of the babies and smash it up against a window. I had to do something. I didn't care about myself anymore. Now, I have to point out the irony that as as far as smashing babies, you tried to use one as a baseball bat at a ballpark, bitch. Anyway, and as for Gwen, she eventually absolutely denied any murders had occurred. Her lawyer tried to show that Kathy was a jealous, vindictive liar, but the jury wasn't having it. And after seven hours of deliberation, they found Gwen Graham guilty on five counts of first-degree murder and one count of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. And on November 2nd, 1989, she was sentenced to six months uh, to six terms of life imprisonment without possibility of parole. So... Gwen Graham is currently housed in the Woman's Huron Valley Correctional Facility in Pittsfield Charter Township, Michigan. Kathy Wood was incarcerated in the minimum security Federal Correctional Institution, Tallahassee, in Florida. She was released on January 16, 2020, and she currently resides, according to the latest reports, in Fort Mill, South Carolina with relatives. So if you're a Fort Mill resident, please watch your old people. And as I pointed out at the beginning, Lowell Caulfield's book, which she very well researched and pretty much on the money, it points out that Kathy is was a psychopathic criminal mastermind who manipulated the prosecutor and jury to punish Gwen. Psychological testing also revealed that Gwen Graham could be easily manipulated, suffered from borderline personality disorder, and she lacked the sophistication to plan the series of killings, let alone adequately defend herself in the trial. So, in a way, Gwen was railroaded, but she also killed five people, so she wasn't railroaded and does belong in prison. 
And also, the book also revealed that Kathy told inmates, her fellow inmates while she was in jail, two other versions of the events. The first one was that she had made the entire story up to put Graham away for life, for leaving her for another woman. The second was that she had done all the killing, but framed Gwen for revenge. So I honestly, I don't know what to believe. I mean, I do think, I do believe there were murders, but I'm not sure who did what and why. But I will say that Kathy seems to be, you know, a complete incubus from hell here. So several of the families sued the owners of Alpine Manor for hiring, quote, dangerous and unbalanced employees. And the nursing home eventually went out of business, but it has since been reopened as a nursing home called the Sanctuary at St. Mary's. And that sounds very peaceful with like a lot of flowers and maybe some Virgin Mary statuary out front. Hopefully they're not hiring psychos anymore. And again, thank you for sticking with Wicked Gay during the long hiatus. And there will be more Wicked Gay coming, I assure you. And if you like Wicked Gay, please leave a review or click a star or recommend it to a friend. You can follow Wicked Gay on social media at Wicked Gay Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you'd like, drop me a line asking me what my problem is with not producing more, more episodes more quickly at WickedGayPod at gmail.com. Cover art is by Paul Chapman, additional music by JB, sound engineering by the other Mr. Harvey. Our theme song is by a band called Gino and the Goons. And again, thank you for listening. You've been listening to Wicked Gay, a true crime podcast about gay people doing awful things. (laughs) 